a new weirdness of having no one here and cameras around and looking at just cameras. And now we're having to get used to actually seeing you and looking at you. And so uh, pardon us if we find, if you find us staring off at a camera at some point or staring off in some other direction, you don't know why we're doing it. That's why, because we're all just trying to sort out what's going on. Um, we are really glad to see you. Um, we have seen, Brenda and I have bumped into a few of you during these last, uh, last few weeks here and there, uh, seeing you around town. Some of you have uh, been um, in and out of the office and the buildings. The uh, offices will actually open next week, so we'll get back to a sense of normal there. Um, we'll have an opportunity for our, uh, our staff to sort of get some normalcy as well as we're, we've been moving in and out of the office a little bit, but, um, the last week or so, but we'll have the office open this next week, regular hours and those things. So some normalcy there. Uh, if you're needing to stop by for something, we're trying to maintain all the rules and regulations we can. Um, but, uh, if you need to stop by, just, you know, come on in and we'll, uh, we'll help you out with what we can help out with. We'll also be starting to do some more regular appointments and things of that nature. So expect some things to try to sort of come back to normal in terms of the way the church functions between weeks. Um, we know that we'll be doing this at least for another week or so because we were already informed that we would only be able to have 100 people in our building. Um, the rule is 25% of capacity or 100 seats, whichever is more. So uh, down the road, there's a church that seats 7,000. And I'm just wondering what that looks like with 100 people in it. I mean, 100 in here is pretty scarce. Imagine what 7,000 with 100 in it would look like. So um, we're, we're looking forward to when things get more normal, but we may be doing this for a little bit. There'll be a sort of a, this is a trial period. There'll be an in, sort of a look at how things are going beyond that um, at the end of the month, and then we'll get more information more rules and regulations. We have sheets of rules and regulations and things to go through uh, to try to make everything work out. So we're just really glad that you all fo- you all came. Um, you know, the, re- the the question was, you know, if you could sit home in your jammies and watch watch uh, church or come, which would you choose? Thank you for being the people who are not home in your jammies right now. Uh, we're glad to have you with us. Uh, would you join me also for a word of prayer? Father, as we start uh, this portion of our service, as we begin to move into your word, I pray for your Holy Spirit to guide. I pray that you would rest on us deeply, that you would speak to us and in us, that we would take what you have for us from the message and from the word today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So the sermon title today... um, I still have nothing up there, guys. So would you, uh, I have, there we go. Thank you. The sermon title, I'm assuming if it's up there, it's up there. That's the only reason I'm asking. Um, the sermon title today is Opening the Hand of Grace. It's my fa- one of my favorite stories in Scripture is a story that takes place in the synagogue. Jesus has been in, been in the church again, and as he is, he's brought up to the front um, really to kind of make a spectacle of him. They kind of know who this guy is. They push him up to the front, and they're, they're wanting to kind of manipulate him a little bit. And so as he's up in the front, they, uh, they, they put a guy in front of Jesus or near Jesus that is prominently uh, suffering. It's Sabbath. The guy has a withered hand, the Bible says. We don't know what that means. But his hand has been either damaged in some accident or born in a, in a, in a deformed shape. We don't know. The Bible just says he has a withered hand. And Jesus, compassionate, loving heart of Jesus, can't just let this go on. And so Jesus, looking around at this group, you can, you, if you read the text, you can go back and look through the text. He's clearly frustrated with them. He, and he looks at this man and he simply says to him, in, the healing, in the healing him, stretch out your hand. And I want you to think of that phrase, stretch out your hand. As we talk about this today, I think the open hand is probably the best symbol of a Christ-like heart. It's an open hand. It's a hand that easily receives from God and it easily gives back. It's a hand that takes, that is ready to receive. It's a hand that is open and ready to give. So stretch out your hand. An open hand. The open hand of grace. So if I, I want to walk through a little bit of this idea, this openness in that early church experience with the Apostle Paul 
Saul becoming Paul. We're probably going to be referring to him that way for the rest of the time. So if you're still a little confused on those names, he was originally named after the first king of Israel. And then he changed his name to a name that meant humble. His name literally meant humble. And so as he moves into this new name, the new name is humble. So humble is now coming onto the scene. As that begins to happen, God prepares the way. So I want to talk to you about a couple things that sort of walk through that, that picture that up. So the miracle first of opening day in church. First day of Christianity out live and in the streets. Christianity was born among the disciples of Jesus in a small group. The dozen of them walking around as they picked up a few here and a few there. Hundreds perhaps are following Jesus, but it's really still just this sort of underground small group of people. People are following him in different places. There's a group up in Galilee. There's a group in Judea. There's probably a group in Samaria. There's a group down in Jericho. There's bits and pieces of what is going to be a church, but at this point there's no church. They're just describing themselves as people who are interested in or following this rabbi from Nazareth, this guy. So if you think about that story, take you, take you into Acts chapter 2 in your mind, the first day of church, Acts chapter 2, the disciples come out of hiding. They've been hiding in the upper room for fear. They're scared. They finally come out of hiding. Now, you have to picture this. They've been in the upper room, and suddenly into the upper room come these tongues of fire experiences. We don't know what this is. The Bible simply says, tongues of fire landed on them. Now, I know when I look at the fire, a fire kind of laps like a tongue. That end of the fire kind of strings up. I don't know if that's what he's describing, that string of fire that comes up landing on them, or if it's literally a tongue that lands on them. Whatever it is, it begins to raise a ruckus. They begin to speak in other languages, and they come out into the street. And as they come out into the street with this new language, emboldened by it, moved by it, sent by the Holy Spirit, shoved out the door by God, I don't know, but they go out into the street. We know that because thousands of people begin to gather. People gather around with this noise and this weird thing that's going on, and they begin to speak. And as they begin to speak, the miracle of that first day of church, the miracle of that opening day in church in Acts chapter 2 gives us this depiction of people who are coming. And it begins to tell us of all of the different types of people who understand and hear the word in their own language. Here's the list. And how is it that we hear each in our own language, which were born in Parthia, people from Media, Elamites, those dwelling in Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, parts of Libya, among the Cyrene visitors, and from Rome, both Jews and proselytes. Proselytes are people who are converted to Judaism. In the first day of the church history, the church comes out, out of the closet, into the street, and the Bible says they spoke in languages that were understood by all of these people from all of these different places. People are visiting Israel. Now, These are all Jewish people, either converts to Judaism or born to Judaism. But they are all people who are there to worship the Jewish God. They're there to worship as a Jewish person. But they're from all over. Day one of Christianity is this global, diverse group of people. So we we have this idea that Christianity was this narrow thing when it started out. It really wasn't. Christianity, when it started out, was this interestingly diverse group of people. Every one of those people goes home a missionary for the cause of Christ after that. So when these people are being baptized on that first day of church's history, you remember Peter gets up and he preaches and 3,000 people are baptized? These people go, most of them, from that point back to their homes. So... Two weeks later, when everybody's back home, you have a missionary in Rome and a missionary in Phrygia. You have a missionary in Cyrene and in Asia and Lydia. Lydia. All of these people go back to their homes. And the church, in this little weird, little underground way, a way that only God could provide, now has sent out its first sets of missionaries. They don't know they've sent it out. They haven't thought of it. There's no strategy from the, the Peter and leaders of the church, but that's what's happening. 
There's a movement going on. So I take you to the second story. Second story. This is right after the conversion. This is the third story. This is right after the conversion of Saul. Okay? He's been to Damascus. He's been converted. All of that stuff is going. It appears to be happening during the time that Saul is off doing his three years of, of study. Both Pastor and Tim and I talked about that. If you missed that, um, we tried twice to get it to you. So during his three years of study, when he's away studying and kind of going to seminary, as he's away for that, this next story takes place. You'll remember the story probably. Most folks remember the story because of the weirdness of it. It's now Acts chapter 10. Peter, get the first part of the story. Don't miss the first part of the story. Those of you who feel guilty about relaxing, don't miss the first part of the story. Peter is down at Joppa. Joppa is a coastal city on the Mediterranean. At the time, it's one of the two major ports on that portion. It is the oldest port port in Israel. If you read the story of Solomon and the building of the temple, they float the logs down th- down the coast to Joppa to unload them to take them up to build the sanctuary in Israel or in Judah or Jerusalem. That's the place where he is. He's hanging out in Joppa. The Bible says that Peter's hungry, and he goes up on the roof and takes a nap. He's laying out. Now picture picture it this way. Just to, just just picture it this way if you have trouble re- resting. Got his blanket. It's one of those tall ones with a palm tree on it that he bought while he was in Hawaii. He goes up on the roof. He lays it out on the roof. He's got his little glass of first century iced tea, which has no ice because they don't have that. He lays down in the sun, embracing the breeze off the ocean and the warm sun on his face, and he falls asleep. And there, while he is napping, God speaks to him. Remember the story? And God lowers this this big sheet down in front of him. Peter went to sleep hungry, so he's dreaming about food. And all this sheet comes down in front of him. And there is every kind of thing you can imagine in there that's not on the clean list. So if you went to Leviticus 11, anything that's on the unclean list is in the sheet. And it's everything you can imagine. Frogs, lizards, snakes... Uh, you know, whatever is in there. Everything that you're not supposed to eat that Peter hasn't ever eaten in his life is in the sheet. And he hears the Lord speak to him and say, rise, Peter, and eat. Kill and eat, actually, is what he says. Peter wakes up, and he, or Peter speaks back to the Lord. Lord, I, I've never done that. I, I've, I've never eaten any of this kind of stuff. Wakes up, startled that God would ask him to eat unclean food. Goes back to sleep. Happens again. He gives the same answer. Happens the third time, gives the same answer. He wakes up now and he's just disturbed. He's forgotten about being hungry. He's forgotten about lunch. He's confused. What is God trying to do to me? Follow the story through the chapter. We find out that across town, actually it's up the coast about 10 miles or 12 miles, there's another dream being had. And it's a guy named Cornelius. And he's being told by God to go down and find this guy at Joppa named Simon, surnamed Peter. He's at the home of Simon the Tanner. By the way, tanners are unclean, so Peter is sitting at an unclean person's house. He's vacationing with an unclean person, which is a whole other layer of things to discuss, but not here. Maybe maybe this Wednesday at 7 we'll talk about that. Ron, send that note in so I don't forget. So he's then, this guy Cornelius sends a, a, a group down to find Peter. When they get to him, Peter's with this weird dream, sort of ready to go and and go talk to Cornelius. What's wild is, he goes there, he gets to Cornelius' home, and when he, he tells Cornelius, I have come here because God told me to call nothing that he declares clean, unclean. Peter realizes the application immediately and, and says, God, you are telling me that I should not call another human being unclean. So now we've had that first day of the church when all these people from all over the world who would be second-rate Jews because they don't live in Israel and they don't live in Judea and they don't live in Jerusalem, all of those people convert. Now we have 
This other guy, this Cornelius, his whole family and a bunch of his friends convert, are given the Holy Spirit, and are baptized by the man, by Peter, man numero uno, the guy who is the leader of the apostles. Peter, of course, has to go home and explain all this to his friends. But a wedge has just been opened up into the Gentile world through miracle number one. They are opening a way for Paul. His answer to them is important to catch. He, Peter, said to them, You know how unlawful it is for a Jewish man to keep company with or go to one of another nation. But God has shown me that I should not call any man common or unclean. Think about about church growth and the church growing in this moment. This is the opening from God they've been waiting for. This is the opening from God. God is telling them it's okay to go talk to people who are not Jews. It's okay to talk to Gentiles. I think God picks Cornelius because he's familiar with with Judaism. He's already friendly towards Jews. He's already been giving. There's a lot about Cornelius that makes him an easy first convert. And God pours out the Holy Spirit on them as a testimony to his power and his authority. It's cool. It's amazing. And he opens that door for Paul to come on the scene in just a few weeks. Therefore, I came without objection. Therefore, I came without objection. God said I should do it, so I came without objection. So we're moving along. Now we have this guy, Paul. He's gone off for his three years. He's come back. Now we have this new preacher. This preacher has been called by God to go to this specific people. But I want you to see what God has been doing in the church. First day of church, all these people from all these other nations are joining, being baptized. And, and they're, they're, these second-class Jews just became first-class Christians. They, came, they became first to the counter. They became first to make the appointment. They became first to show up for the event right for the opening of the church. These were first. Then, a few weeks later, Peter gets a vision. I can't go down there. Then I'm too close to you. Peter gets a vision. And he's, they open the doors for him to go and talk to Gentiles. Right behind him is third person. Now you can see God's advancing the church into the, into the world. Third person. When Paul is called in, when Paul describes as Paul in Galatians chapter one, he says, when it was, when it pleased God, when it was God's timing to reveal his son to me, that I might preach him among the Gentiles. Now, we just, we just don't have a context for this. We just don't have a worldview that works here. But you have to get Paul for just a second. Paul is a Pharisee of Pharisees by his own description, right? So a Pharisee believes that they are status one among all the other Jews. They're the best of the best of the best of the best. Paul actually describes himself as having not known any sin. I just wonder how well he knew himself. He describes himself as not knowing any sin until he discovered covetousness, which is obviously that sin of wanting someone else's stuff. So apparently, Paul uh, liked a good car when he saw one, and so when he saw somebody else's camel go by, he's like, oh man, I'd like one of those. Covetousness was his thing. But he said before that, he didn't know of any sin that he actually had committed. I wonder if he would admit that after, when he got a little later in his life. I I don't know. But here's the deal. He knows he's number one. He's among the elite. This is like like the, uh, the, the Navy SEALs of Judaism. Okay? They can take anybody. They can whip anybody. They are the cream of the crop. Below them, from Paul's description, would be the Sadducees. They're very committed to, to spiritual things. They're very committed to, to, to the Word and understanding it. But they don't know what they're talking about. Their theology is a little messed up. You know, we have people, we do that with among ourselves, right? You always know that you are right and everybody else is just a tad below. Some more than a tad. You're, you're right. Your theology is all correct. You, you sorted, sorted that all out and then you have everybody on down the steps from you. Okay? Well, the Pharisees knew they were right. They could prove it. They proved it to themselves and that's the only ones that really mattered. 
and then the Sadducees, and then the priesthood, and then those other hoi polloi out there on the streets. And then, you know, you keep going down the list, and you're classifying Jews. You probably, if you really sat down and thought about it, Paul could probably classify Jews in at least 20 categories. Down to those who were barely hanging on. You know the ones we're talking about. The ones who actually live in Rome. And they only come to come to, to church. They only come to Jerusalem maybe once every couple of years. They're not very good Jews at all. And, and they live among the Romans. They live among the worst of the Gentiles. They're, they cannot walk outside their house without being unclean. So those guys, those, those first Christian believers, in Paul's estimation, bottom of the pile. And now God calls that guy to be the pastor of the Gentile church. Don't you love how God works? Don't you love the fact that when God called you, he immediately began to work on all the stuff that you didn't want him to work on? In fact, he's probably doing that still. He's probably messing with you right now. The fact that I just said that brought something to your mind. Here's the Apostle Paul. He's up here, everybody else is down here, and now his job is not to minister to the Jews at the bottom of the pile, but the non-Jews who aren't even in the pile. Pastor to the Gentiles. So as he self-describes at the beginning of this book, we talked about this. This, is, this, this piece about Apostle to the Gentiles should probably be review. I hope it's review. Because I, I, I would assume first, first in have been watching. So, now I want to talk about the opposite of the open hand. I want to talk about the clenched fist of legalism. You see, this is how legalism works. I take what I have, I hold on to it, and I use it to manipulate God. And you may not think this is true, but consider, consider. Legalism is a system by which I get God to do what I want. At its core, it is pagan. I'm trying to let that sink in. Because that's, that is the theology of every pagan religion in the history of mankind. Every pagan religion is, I make the God do what I want by, do, by performing certain activities. I won't go into describing what a lot of those activities are, but if you're, you think about the, some of those ones that, are, uh, that we know of that, are, that just tear your heart apart, you know why people are sacrificing their ba- babies in paganism? To try to get the God to do what they want. Good luck, good crops, blessed house. Bury grandma in the foundation if you want a good house. Sorry, grandma, we wanted a house more than we wanted you. Sacrifice your children so that you will have a better crop next year. That's, that's paganism. That's manipulating God. You got it? You got to understand that? That's manipulating God, the God, whoever that God is, to behave in the manner you want them to. Legalism is the same thing adopted into an attempt to control the God of the universe. Legalism is me trying to take the things I know I can do and make God love me, make God answer my prayer, make God take care of some problem. I will behave really well if you will fix this. Lord, I am, I am going to do everything perfect for the rest of my life as long as you will fix this. It's you making a deal with God to try to make God do something. And if that something, if, if the only thing on your list is save me, it's still paganism. It's me manipulating God to do what I want. Okay? That is a clenched fist. That is not an open hand. Because that that doesn't have opportunity. That doesn't have motivation to share. Because it's about me getting what I want. And that's who the Apostle Paul was. Then God kicked him out into the Gentile world and said, Hey, we would like you to pastor those people whose homes are unclean, whose breath is unclean. Maybe those in your front need a mask. Those out there in the world who you despise, that's your church. 
Now, in the book of Galatians, okay, in the book of Galatians, we get the, the voice of Paul kind of angry. It's, it's the book of Galatians. He's talking to the, he's sending a letter to the Galatian church and he's kind of frustrated with them. We find it in chapter 3. It starts out like this. Oh, foolish Galatians. Oh, foolish Galatians. Who has bewitched you that you should not obey the truth? Obey the truth. Obey the truth. Who has bewitched you that you should not obey the truth? Before whose eyes Jesus Christ was... Hold on. Somebody push a button back there for me because mine ain't working. Thank you. Oh, now we went to two. Back up one. Before whose eyes Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed among you as crucified. You guys, are, you guys have walked away from Jesus. You guys have walked away from the one who gave his life to give you eternity. You have walked away from the preaching that I have told you. You've disobeyed the truth, but the truth you've disobeyed is that you are saved by grace through faith. That, not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast about what they have done that they might be saved. Foolish Galatians. Foolish Galatians. In order to teach them that their, their connection with Scripture is solid, he walks them and us through what he discovered during those three years. I believe that what we're going to talk about, it's, in, it's just bang, 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 just three little connections. But those three connections, I believe, are what are core to his discovery during those three years when he was off in Arabia. Three verses. Three things are mentioned by him. These are the, these are the foundations. These are the solid ground upon which you can open your hand. Here's what I want you to think about. When you are nervous, when you are tense, when things are moving around under you, one of the things we all do is tighten up. I don't know if you do it. I know that I lift my shoulders, I clench my teeth, and I close my fist. I will find myself doing this sometimes. I have actually, in the last probably six months, been trying to teach myself just to smile again. Just stop and smile because it relaxes my face. When it relaxes my face, it kind of relaxes my shoulders. And then I kind of realize, okay, you're kind of tense, relax. But you, we, when, when things are shaky for us, when things are, are kind of out of control, when the ground under us starts to move, we tend to clench everything up. I clench my teeth. I close my fist like I'm going to fight something. And I just get in that moment of, oh, no, i got to get my stability back. When ground, the ground under you is solid, you can relax. And that's what Paul is doing. He's taking them to the solid ground upon which the theology he's teaching them is founded. And that's what we're going to walk through really Quickly in Galatians chapter 3. Paul speaking. Therefore, he who supplies the Spirit. What Spirit are we talking about? The Holy Spirit. It's so nice to be able to ask a question and get an answer. The Holy Spirit. God's Holy Spirit. You're talking about God's Holy Spirit. He who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you, does he do it by the works of the law? Does God do things for you because you have a tight, clenched fist around the law. It, the question, the obvious answer to the question is no, right? He's, he's undermining the idea that legalism works. He said, does God provide you the Holy Spirit and work miracles because you guys were awesome? Said, no, of course not. This is an Old Testament principle. Israel was told you were selected not because you were the greatest among nations, but because you were the least. When God describes how he finds them, he describes them as a rejected child laying out on a rock, still covered in the birth matter. And taking them and cleaning them and clothing them and caring for them. The description is, you were nothing to be taken home. I picked you up because I picked you. You don't have nothing to be grandly happy and proud about. You, don't, you didn't earn anything. I picked you. I picked you. I saved you. Paul is saying, God is still working the same deal. He's not doing this because you guys are amazing. Did he work by the works of the law or by hearing of faith? Remember what faith is. Faith is trust, right? Substitute the word trust almost any time you read faith and you will understand the passage very clearly. 
He knew that you trust him. He, he heard your trust. He felt your trust. What was lost in the Garden of Eden was trust. What's regained in your walk with God is trust. Trust. He did it because of your faith, because you believed in him, because you trusted him. Then he says, just as Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him as righteousness. He didn't actually have righteousness. The accountant simply took his sheet, took his giant negative sinfulness, scratched it all out, and wrote in a positive number. It was accounted to him as righteousness. Not something that he earned, it's something that he was given. Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. Therefore, know that only those who are of faith are sons of Abraham. Here's the problem. Everybody is saying, if you're going to be a son of Abraham, you have to keep the laws. You have to, do, you have to go to, to the feasts. You have to be circumcised. You have to become a Jew before you can become a Christian. And Paul's saying, no. No, you don't. You have a direct path to God. That is yours and mine as well. I don't know how many of you have Jewish blood in, flowing through your veins. There are probably a few of you. I know one. Where's Isaac? I don't see Isaac. Oh, there he is. He had his head down. I know those, there's a couple of you here have a little bit of Jewish blood throwing through. So other than them, the rest of us would be lost according to the Jewish regulation. The apostle says, no, this isn't about blood in your veins. It's about the blood from Jesus' veins. This isn't about you having the right blood in you. It's about you having the blood spilt upon you. This is about you believing in what Jesus did. You believing in God's provision. That's why he accounted you as righteous. That's why he accounted you as faithful. And oh, by the way, it was the same for Father Abraham, Jew number one. You get the picture? He's, he's saying it's never been different. Paul is, Paul is drawing Old Testament theology into the New Testament presence of the Galatians saying, look, you're on solid foundation when I'm talking to you. Those who are claiming that what I'm teaching you isn't in the scripture, here's where it is. It's right there, day one, Father Abraham, Genesis chapter 15. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith. By what? By faith, by trusting in God. He would just... He would ju- <clears throat> He would justify the Gentiles because of their faith, because of their trust in him. God preached the gospel to Abraham. Stop for just a sec. Did you hear that? God, knowing that the Gentiles would be saved by faith, preached the gospel. The words that you Galatians have heard, the word that you local grace pointers have heard, the words that we all understand to be the gospel, God preached them first to Abraham. God preached the gospel to Abraham beforehand, saying, If you, in you, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. In you, all nations will be blessed. It's actually found in Genesis 12, Genesis 18, and one other place in Genesis. Three times God tells Abraham, Through you, everyone gets blessed. Abraham was declared righteous because he trusted God. That is the gospel Abraham that was preached to the Galatians. That is the gospel that was preached to Abraham. And that is the gospel that is true to you and to me today. Are you with me so far? I am building to get into your kitchen. I'm just, I'm just quietly laying out the sales papers on the, on the table right now. But I'm about to come right into your kitchen, okay? So just pay attention because I'm going to get my pen out in a minute and ask you to sign on the bottom line. Get the picture. Galatians, you foolish Galatians, what's going on with you? You've walked away from Jesus in the hopes of being saved in some honor manner? Not happening. Abraham was saved by faith. God preached the gospel to Abraham when he told him the whole world, the Gentile world, will be blessed through you. The good news was preached by God to Abraham first. And what I'm telling you is rock solid. Because the Jewish people had come behind Paul and told him that there's no footing, there's no biblical footing under this. He's reestablishing the solid foundation. 
but that no one is justified by the law in the sight of God is evident. And he quotes Habakkuk. That no one is justified by the law in the sight of God is evident. It's clear in Scripture. It's clear in the Old Testament text. It's clear in the Scripture we all consider the Word of God. It's clear because it says in Habakkuk, the just shall live by faith. That is not Romans. That is not Ephesians. That is Habakkuk. That is an Old Testament minor prophet. And he knew exactly what Paul would later preach. The just shall live by faith. How are the just going to live? Oh, they're going to live by faith. How are the just going to be saved? Oh, they're going to be saved by faith. When Paul comes to the New Testament, he says, you are saved by grace through faith. He's standing on Habakkuk's shoulders. He's standing on Abraham's shoulders. He's standing on Solomon's shoulders. He's standing on David's shoulders. He's standing on Moses' shoulders. You need to understand that your text, your Old Testament text, teaches the same thing your New Testament text teaches. He is telling the Galatians, stop freaking out. It's all right there in the Old Testament. Here it is, right in the text, quote after quote after quote. He's reestablishing the foundations of the gospel for them to understand. Foolish Galatians, come back, come back, come back. Here it is for you. For you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. That's his bottom line. But get the word all. Don't miss the word all. You are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. You are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. This is the preamble point to one of the most oft-quoted texts of Paul in the present era. What I have been teaching you, what I've been going through with you is is Paul setting the foundation for faith in Jesus, setting the foundation for the teaching of the gospel, and he's laying out these foundation pieces, as he's laying all these things out, as as Paul is dealing with these pieces, he's coming to this point. We're kind of coming up to the pinnacle point for Paul. And the last thing he says before he makes the point that I'm holding out on you For you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. You are all, all, all. Everyone who has ever taken the name of Jesus is a son or daughter of God only because of Jesus. It is in Christ that this is true. And here's what he says next. Because in Christ there is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither male nor female. There is neither slave nor nor free. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female. Catch the three categories. Don't miss the three categories. The first category is the category of national race. There is neither Jew nor Greek. When Paul is, when, when, when Paul is talking about Greek, he's talking about the whole world. Because as far as he is concerned, every Gentile is Hellenized. Even the Romans are Hellenized. Simply meaning that they are Grecian. They are related to the the world. They relate to the world as Greeks, as people who live within the system of the Greeks. Okay? Historically, you go back and read your, your, uh, your high school history text, it'll tell you the same thing. The point that he's making is that we are all of one standard, one standardized group. When we become followers of Christ, we are no longer defined by our nationality. You know what has messed us up? Human pride. Human pride. The brokenness of our humanity is the reason we can't look across the room at someone different from us and consider them equal to us. And it doesn't matter what the difference is. I'm white. I can look across the room and see brown, black, and say, well, they're not the same as me because they're a different color. If you're black, you can look across the room at me and say, he's not the same as me because he's a different color. Paul is saying it's not true. He's saying in Christ, nationality, differences in race don't matter. 
in our world, as believers, we are called to that standard. The second standard is neither slave nor free. These are polar opposites on the sort of economic scale, the social strata of the world. He's saying there's neither slave, the bottom of the heap, the servant, or free. The person who, in the Roman world, has tremendous status. Paul is a free Roman. Born free Roman. It's a big deal. And he's saying in Christ it doesn't matter. You've got to understand the Galatian church is an amalgamation of all of that first baptism business. Remember the first baptism? They baptized 3,000 people, and they're from all over the place, all over the Roman world, from Egypt to Rome, up to Asia. They're from everywhere. The first baptism tells you this about the church. The very first baptism. We all read about Paul. And 3,000 people were baptized on the first day. What we don't really stop to think about is that they're baptizing red and yellow, black and white. You realize that the book of Philemon is written about a slave? It's written about a slave named Onesimus. And Paul is basically telling Philemon, let him go, dummy. That's my short version of the book which is also quite short. But you get the picture. This is simply saying there's the socioeconomics don't matter. Here's I'm going to hit somebody and make somebody mad right now. Here's the deal. Being poor is nothing to scowl at. Now I want I'm going to hit the other ones of you. Being rich is nothing to scowl at. It bugs me that we have, a, we have a whole group in our society. In fact, it seems to me like a majority of people who seem to think it's okay to say, hey, rich people are all bad. People who are rich can't possibly be good people. Who, na- who died and named you king? In the same right, in the same breath, you know the Old Testament scriptures say that you are to take care of the poor? Both ends of the, the call of Christianity is having hands around both groups. There is no slave or free, one end of the spectrum to the other. In Christ, no difference because it's the blood of the lamb, not the blood of the man. And no oh man. The next layer, there is neither male or female. There's a whole bunch we can talk about right within our own church about that. But understand that at that time in history, there were places where a woman was literally property. Literally property. And her husband or her brother, or her father, had power over her up to the point of execution. That was common within the the nations around them. The Romans and the Jews were actually a little more enlightened than a lot of the other nations around them where women are concerned. But don't go this, go this. Here's the piece of that. And again, I might make you mad. It's kind of the day for it. You do not get to look down on a man because he's a man. Yeah, you thought I was going to talk about girls, didn't you? I will. But it is a common, comfortable thing in our society to look down on men because they are men. You know what that's doing to men? It's making them want to not be men. And then you know what I hear? I hear young women complaining because there are no men around. Just boys in long pants. Our culture does not have permission to do that. Our our Christian culture does not have permission to do that. Now that I've messed with you ladies, guys, you need to think with this head. Okay? Clear enough? Stop looking at a woman as if she's some kind of object. Stop looking at her as something to get, use, and throw away. Turn off things on your computer. 
that would offend your mother. Come on. It's a simple standard. If I'm looking at something on my screen and I wouldn't want my mom to see it, turn it off. Yes, I'm a little angry about this today. I don't know if you could tell. I'm really angry about what's going on in our world today, and I'm angry about the fact that the church is lining up and taking sides. I am angry that the church is taking weird sides. That the church wants to stand up and defend the indefensible. We, we stand for things because of our political convictions that we would not think of standing for in our theological understanding. The church is supposed to be different. Because we are in Christ, bathed in the blood of the Lamb, all of us. And as a result of the bathing of the blood of the Lamb in all of us, we have different lenses on. And we don't see anyone in the world whom Jesus didn't die for. We don't see anyone in the world whom God doesn't love. We don't see anyone in the world who is worthless. Either worthless entirely or worthless, worth less than me. It breaks my heart. It breaks my heart to see some of the stands that the church is taking. The church is us. We have to stand for what is right, what is biblically right, not our favorite political norm, not our favorite national norm, but what is biblically correct. The Apostle Paul was one of the worst bigots in the history of mankind. He was a powerful, leading, wealthy, religious bigot. The worst possible kind. And he gets to this point because Jesus broke his heart. He can say there are no racial differences. There are are no socioeconomic differences. I don't even want to see gender differences in my life. Because you are all in Christ. You are in Christ. And in Christ, you are all one. This messed up world we need, we live in, needs you and I to live by a different standard than what they're living. I have said it, and I will say it till I die. The local church is the hope of the world. Without the local church, the world will and is going to hell. There's no question about it. And that's you. And that's me. It's not a name or an entity or a building. It is people living by a biblical standard. Taking our faith out to the street. You see, when the world gets all shaky, we have an anchor. And our anchor is holy in our faith. It is in our trust in Jesus that we are anchored. This is why believers can face death unafraid 
because they're anchored in a faith, in a realization that God has this in his control. It is your faith in God that the world needs right now. It it is your faith, my faith, that the world needs right now. And it's dying for the lack of it. When your friends get on Instagram or Snapchat or Facebook or wherever you find them and they're going off on something, can you point them to Jesus? Can you, can you step into that thing and say, I don't understand where your pain is coming from, but I know what the answer is. I don't understand why you're so upset. I don't, I don't relate to whatever's bothering you, but I know what the answer is. You know, it might be worthwhile to have a conversation with somebody who's a different color than you. It might be worthwhile to have a conversation with that rich people, rich person that you're kind of despising right now. It might be worthwhile to sit across the table from a beautiful woman and see her as a person. It might be worthwhile to sit across the table from a manly man and see him as a person. Because the world needs your eyes to be different and my eyes to be different and our life to be different. And that's my challenge for you today. That's Paul's challenge for you. Don't look at the world the way everyone else looks at it. Look at it as Jesus sees it. Because all of us are one in Christ. Not our blood, but his blood. Let's pray. Father in heaven, there's there's a thousand ways I mess this up every day. And I apologize. I ask for the filling of your spirit to do better. Lord, I ask that all of our convictions, all of our convictions might be covered by your grace and led by your spirit. Lord, I pray that you would keep us passionate that our passion, our passion would be for Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen.